Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Joe Marks, Executive Director of the Center for Machine Learning and Healthcare at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Joe about his experience growing up in Ireland and his path to coming to the U.S. and receiving three degrees from Harvard University. Joe will also share his work in applied computing and research across multiple industries, including Mitsubishi Electric and Disney. And finally, Joe's work at Carnegie Mellon, which is at the intersection of big companies, university, and government research, producing fast-moving startups. This is a great model that can be used for doing research and development across industries in the future. Please enjoy my conversation with Joe Marks. Welcome, Dr. Joe Marks. Great to have you here today. Yeah, the the doctor part, I do have a PhD, Tim, but the doctor part, I always, that that, that always like, no, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm just regular old Joe. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, you you deserve a lot lot more credit, but we'll, we'll refer to you as Joe because... Because we're friends and and I like you, but but I respect you even more, and that's so I I think you know, what you've done in your career is just fascinating, and I'll give a little bit of background uh, for the listeners here, but that'd be great for you to kind of help tell the story and the narrative of how you got to where you are, because I think the journey is so oftentimes the thing that is uh, most interesting. So you're yes. the executive director of the Center for Machine Learning and Healthcare at Carnegie Mellon, correct, uh, University in Pittsburgh. You've been involved in applied computing and research in multiple industries, and I'm sure I'll miss some, but highlights being doing work for Mitsubishi Electric, doing work for Disney, setting up research groups globally. Yep. And you have you know, multiple degrees, you know, bachelor's in math, master's of science in computer science, and a PhD in computer science, all from Harvard. Correct. And uh, we met a couple of years ago at Carnegie Mellon have stayed connected, which I really appreciate. And I think some of the stuff that you're doing is just really fascinating and important and people need to know about it. Uh, But first back to some of your background, your early background and what has shaped and formed you and how we got to where we are today. Uh Well, maybe that, you know, a good message for people on the podcast, not everybody gets born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So uh, I grew up on the North side of Dublin, Ireland. The north side is the tough side. And uh, nobody in my family had gone to high school, uh, extended family. And so there wasn't a tradition of education or advancement that way. And I ended up getting a great education by, by accident. My mother, who, who was a very, a very driven person, decided that you know our family had, had, scrab- had, had scrambled for too long, that the thing for me to do was to go to a school where I would mingle with my, my social betters. This is a very European concept. And, uh, and I'd maybe you know, get to fake it in that, uh, in that community. So she got the money together. I mean, it was maybe only a thousand bucks a year, but a huge amount for us to go to a private school where I would mingle with my betters. But then I didn't want to mingle with my betters, in quotes, but there was a great education to be had at the school. Yeah. <laughs> and I embraced the education to my mother's dying regret. It's like, that's not why I sent you to that school. So I parlayed that education to, you know, three degrees from Harvard and a lot of other things. 
and I, I, I've been a family disappointment because that wasn't the plan. The plan was that I would be hobnobbing oh with gosh. the social elite in uh, in Europe. Really, not my kind of thing. <laughs> but I did get a great education. It wasn't clear I would go into science. I actually studied uh, uh, ancient Greek and and Latin, and and was was thinking of becoming a classical scholar, but ended up more on the on the the, the STEM side of things. And then, um, you know, so that was the first lucky break for the wrong reason. My, my mother sent me to the, to the right school. And then um, the next lucky break was, you know, where was I going to go to university? Because I wanted to go, but I couldn't talk to anybody who knew who'd been on that path. But I, I like taking up crazy hobbies. And I had taken up the hobby of hammer throwing, you know, the Olympic event. Now, I'm possibly the worst hammer thrower ever. And I, I don't make that claim lightly. <laughs> I just, you, you need power, agility, strength, and all of those things. I don't have uh, coordination. But What attracted would, you to it then? It's, there's something very satisfying about throwing this 16-pound ball. You know, I was throwing at half the distance of everybody else, but, but throwing that 100 feet is actually not trivial. And there's a nice thud at the end of it. And there's something, it's just some a cool. Ther- some therapeutic <laughs> it's benefits. therapeutic. But I worked out with athletes who ended up being Olympians. I mean, really good athletes. They were very welcoming even to a duffer like myself. And for them in Ireland at the time, the athletic scholarship to an American university was their, their dream. These guys were generally not that academically inclined. They weren't going to be able to go to university in, in, in Ireland, win a place there or in Europe. But to an American, a track scholarship to Villanova, University of Washington, Manhattan College, these are all big feeder schools from, for Irish track and field athletes. And a couple have gone to Harvard, Boston University. And I got hanging out with these guys. And after one particularly disastrous workout where I nearly killed somebody with the hammer, the coach said to me something. He said, you know, American schools take, uh, have scholarships for other than (laughs) 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 scholar athletes with the emphasis on athlete. And, uh, And I said, that sounds interesting. And so long story short, I ended up going to, to Harvard. Culture shock was immense. I'd never been to the U.S., never been around a university. It was, it was, I had no money. It was difficult. But I knew I was playing in the big leagues before I even knew what big leagues meant. And so decided that that's where I would, would go. So got a great education at, at Harvard. And then the next break I got after that was I got a job at a company called Bolt, Baranek & Newman, BBN. Most of your your listeners may not have heard of that, but it's where the ARPANET was built that became the internet. So, you know, it wasn't Al Gore. I'm sure he did. He's done a lot of great things, but it was people working on DARPA contracts at Fresh Pond in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, this BBN place. Now, a lot of people heard of Xerox Park on the West Coast. BBN was kind of the East Coast equivalent, but just has a lower profile. But the ARPANET's a pretty good uh, a start. And when I joined, so those guys were all a little older when I got, got out of school, although you know, Ray Tomlinson, the guy who put the at sign in email addresses, his office was just a few doors down from mine when I started there. He just recently passed, actually. And the, the hot project at the time there was, was SimNet, which was a military simulation and training project. They were looking to get people, and I joined this project, and there was, there was only about five of us doing the software. And this project has revolutionized military simulation and training. Before that project, it was just simulators were used to train people on individual vehicles, a tank or a helicopter. But 
you can actually learn how to operate a tank in a parking lot. I have. <laughs> it's uh, the tricky part is trying to coordinate, you know, units of uh, tanks, and that meant distributed simulation, connected simulators, and that was new at that time in the 80s, and it just changed military training completely, and it allowed even to this day, our forces just are better trained than all their adversaries. Actually, oddly enough, just last night I watched a documentary. Some of your, your listeners might be interested on the Battle of 73 Easting. This was maybe the last great tank battle of the 20th century. I won't put in any spoiler alerts. It was between uh, uh, the 7th Cavalry and the Republican Guard in the first uh, Iraq War. You should watch the, doc- the documentary. But what's not said in the documentary wow. is that all of the people involved in that were trained on the SimNet system. And it was really quite remarkable. It's it's interesting that the the captain who was uh, one of the heroes of this engagement was H.R. McMaster, who's gone on to other careers in the military and the government. But that was was my intro to R&D. And as a kid right out of college, to be able to work on something that had a significant impact on the world Um, in the Cold War times, this was a significant project and went on to have a have a big impact for the US that was that was very energizing and it, it it made me realize I wanted to do more of that yeah if we can just pause on that for a second because i think there's a couple of things that interesting there and i wonder how you uh, if i'm observing this correctly i mean you, you mentioned ray tomlinson and the you know the at symbol for the email and then simnet with the with the tanks early in your career when you see that people can actually have an impact on you know, that kind of impact with something new, with the new innovation. It reminds me of a book by Bob Johansson that you may know called Leaders Make the Future. And he's I'm consulted. Not, but quite, I'm, I'm, I'm writing it right down here. Uh, that, that's he, his. He, yeah, he's terrific. And he's consulted with the DOD quite a bit. And I know Procter & Gamble has has worked with him. And and there's, a, there's kind of a, f- a famous speech that Steve Jobs gives as well, when Steve Jobs really, the light bulb went off in his mm-hmm. mind that, you don't have to just accept what the future's right. going to be. You can actually impact it, right? And I wonder to what degree those early experiences for you helped shape your your view. Which, and this is, you know, this is experiential learning that potentially influenced you more than any kind of academic learning could ever oh. have done, right? Without a doubt. I mean, to see it, to, to rub shoulders with these people who had done something that was changing the world to, you know, to be able to, to, to participate in that, realize it could be done. That's the biggest thing with a lot of things is knowing it can be done. Uh, and does that you give know, you confidence? That's right. Now, what I didn't appreciate until later was the amount of great management at BBN, at DARPA that led to that. You know, I was writing code, but in order for somebody to sit down at a keyboard and write code, there's all these things have had to have happened around you. And in this case, for government work, it's, it's the whole government funding cycle in the venture capital world. It's raising venture capital and, it's, and all that that entails. But all those things have to happen around you before, you know, fingers touch the keyboard. And I wasn't, you know, I've learned that later, um, you know, Simnet and, 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 and BBN, there were a lot of great leaders there, to your point. And I was the beneficiary of that, and I was, you know, I was helping on that, but but I was exposed to it, and it was like, yes, I can I can see myself in this role. I've got to learn more things, I've got to do more things, but I can. This is a community of people I can join. And um, I think that, that, that same that same thing happens, I think, to entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. 
Yeah. Someone who's worked yes, there and, yes. and also in the Midwest. If you're in the, if you're outside of Silicon Valley and you read about these people in, you know, uh, TechCrunch or Fast Company or what have you, you start to get this little bit of hero worship and think these people have special, you know, superpowers and capes. Yes. Yes. And when instead it's somebody that you play poker with on Friday night and they live across the street and someday they show up and they said, Hey, we just bought our house for cash because my startup just got bought or went public. You go, wait a minute. I beat yeah. that guy every weekend. And all of a sudden <laughs> exactly you know, he's a multimillionaire. Right. I can do it too. Right. It yep. gives you that confidence. Yes. Yes. And it's, and I've had this experience where actually, we've had this conversation before the Apollo mission. So remember I'm, I'm this, this kid in, in Dublin, Ireland and, and the Americans go to the moon, the rest of the world, you Americans, I'm an American citizen now, but that, that, that didn't appreciate what the rest of the world thought of that. And I remember my father took me to the U S embassy in Dublin, where they had a show after with the moon rock and to go into the embassy and see the Marines and see the equipment. And there might've been an astronaut there or somebody from NASA these people looked like gods to me. It was like, these are not cut from the same cloth that, that we are. It was something to aspire to. And now I realize, again, that's a community that I could be, uh, you know, uh, comfortable in. But it, 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 uh, to be exposed to it and, and then to aspire to it and then to do it. I think there's a, a lesson for young people in there. You know, all these people put on their pants one leg at a time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the right application, you can be part of them too. Great. But anyway, getting back to that. So after Bolt, Baronet, and Newman, I realized this is what I want to do. I need to learn a whole lot more. Went back, uh, got my PhD, and then entered an interesting part in my career. I joined Digital Equipment Corporation. I think it was the week the stock peaked. <laughs> and after that, it was downhill to the drain. Timing so, is everything. Timing is everything. So I joined a great research lab, a bunch of famous people there. Again, I was rubbing shoulders with great people, but they were great people in a dysfunctional situation, a massively dysfunctional situation. And it was interesting to see how you could have great people, but in the wrong context. So now sort of the, 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 uh, the inverse of the Bulbarnik and Newman situation, it's like great people, bad situation complete chaos, dysfunction, disaster. I stuck it out for a while and then uh, literally walked across the street to one of the Japanese labs, Mitsubishi Electric. Had that was This was in the 90s. It was popular for Japanese companies to put research labs in the U.S. Mitsubishi Electric was one of them. Joined this. Les Bellotti was the manager there, the guy who invented virtual memory at IBM. And then later he was succeeded by Jim Foley. Foley and Van Dam is a, a computer graphics text that some of your listeners might have on their shelves. It was not a successful lab, at least initially. And I ended up running it for the, the last five years I was there and managed to get an opportunity to now be a leader um, and not just a, a team member. And I got to put in, in, into practice a lot of things that I'd seen positively at BBN, negatively at, at digital negatively somewhat at Mitsubishi Electric and put together a great team. And we did some fantastic stuff early on and in, in, in applied computing that's, that's still used today. But a lot of it did not get used. And this began the seed. I, I, I tried at that point to say, we're not using all of the great technology we're developing. How about put an innovation incubator alongside here. And if the Japanese company doesn't use it, or if they use it in Japan, we could still spin up a startup in the U.S. to do it. 
And that was basically the result of my demise at Mitsubishi Electric. It ended up in a heated meeting where uh, the phrase, and I, I have it in, uh, imprinted on my mind, Josan, you're under the mistaken impression your job is to make money. It's not. It's to create jobs for Japanese nationals. And it's like, well, geez, after 10 years, it's nice that we clarify that point, <laughs> <laughs> which had not been clear before. And so I realized this is this isn't going to work here. It's Research labs are disruptive innovators and big companies want incremental innovation. In particular, in that uh, situation, they wanted incremental innovation with a particular metric that was job creation, not, not profit creation. So that didn't end particularly well. And, um, but it allowed me to create a reputation for myself, a brand. And this was just at the time when uh, Disney had bought Pixar and were looking to broaden their technological innovation. Disney had been somewhat stagnant in that. And so they were looking to set up a Disney technology R&D group in Los Angeles, mostly. And the Pixar guys would have been the obvious ones to run that, but none of them wanted to move. I, I learned about this. San Francisco people don't like to move to LA. <laughs> They'll visit for a day or two, but they, they like their San Francisco. They like the Bay Area. So they couldn't get any of the Pixar guys, but the Pixar guys knew me from conferences. And you know, another thing for young people listening to your podcast, when you can do so again, go to conferences and, uh, and, and mingle and connect with people from all over. Uh, you never know how and when it will be useful. So I become friends with the Pixar guys and they uh, basically had me interviewed for the job and I ended up setting up Disney Research, which still exists. You can look at it, DisneyResearch.com, the premier R&D organization in the media and entertainment industry. And that was a wonderful five years, set up labs in Zurich, Boston, Pittsburgh, LA, Pixar guys in San Francisco. But again, it was the same story of we invented way more than was actually used. And again, I tried to see if there was interest in setting up an innovation incubator to exploit things that the parent company were not ready to immediately use. And I got further in the debate than I did with, um, uh, with, the, with the Japanese company. But ultimately, it came down to they believed that I could run an R&D organization, but that I didn't have entrepreneurial experience, which was a very good point. And I thought, well, I'm still young enough to maybe go out and get that entrepreneurial experience. So walked away from one of the great jobs on the planet, running Disney Research, and went off to do my first startup uh, in midlife um, to, to plug that gap. And sort of with the goal, I'd, I'd worked in government-funded innovation. I'd worked in big company uh, innovation. Uh, I'd worked with universities and at university, I'd been a university lecturer, I obviously got my PhD. I'd seen those loci of innovation and startups was the one place I hadn't done. And it occurred to me that, you know, if I could gain experience in all those areas, that would allow me to do some things I might not otherwise be able to do. And so, so yeah, can you go a little yep. further? That's interesting to compare those different, uh, the different environments or contexts. One, one is the R&D for R&D's sake environment. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep. Whether it's large corporate or government related. The other might be for commercial ends. Yes, right? yes. Uh, within large corporation or startup. Like, can you kind of compare and contrast what you think? My guess is it's not one is better than the other, but certain types of innovations are better placed in certain That's, environments, right? You exactly put your finger on it. I mean, it's hard to see the ARPANET and the internet of coming out of anything other than government funded work. 
the capital, the attributes? there are some things I believe that only, only governments can really do. They were good examples of that. And DARPA is a national treasure. And, you know, the U.S., we do that particularly well. We also get some things wrong. You think we're not, still doing it? Because like, you know, and, and kind of in the context of fast frontiers. Yes. That was true. And that's why we had NASA. Mm-hmm. Right, to do a, something as big and ambitious as a space program. But now you have SpaceX and other privatization of space. And is it is it just the progression of that industry or is it the times we're in now that that innovation, uh, the technology is enabling innovation to happen faster than it did before? I, 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 st- I still think there are things that, that government-sponsored research can do that the, the private industry can't. And I, it, it, it's great to see that evolution, you know, from NASA to SpaceX. And I think that's a healthy thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. SpaceX, you couldn't have started in the 60s with SpaceX. It just, you right. just couldn't have done it. And so I, I think there'll always be be a, a role for that. And we have in the past done it particularly well. Um, it is big government, though, and that isn't necessarily the the, the mantra of the moment. But I think people should look back on, you know, some of the things where we've been world leaders on and look at the role of government in fostering that R&D and not throw that away. It's not, um, and it's and it's not a replacement for other things. It's just to get to your point, there was a certain kind of R&D that was done well there. Big companies, uh, the same thing. I mean, the whole, the telecommunications industry and Bell Labs, uh, you can't, you know, that was, they were well suited to, to innovate there and to exploit that. Companies or countries who tried to do that with government uh, entities didn't do so well and didn't have that same thing. Apple and the whole, you know, mobile computing, it's hard to see that anything other than a big company was the right place to do that kind of work. You needed a lot of resources, but you also didn't need the, the, the long timeline design innovation is probably not something a government would get behind, but a, but a company could get behind. So I think that made sense. And then you look at all the startup innovations where, yes, it can be done with, you know, tens of millions, small amount of funding, and, and they're the right thing to do. And I, I'm particularly interested in, in environments, communities that combine those. And I think that's one of the things that attracted me to, to Pittsburgh and CMU. And I think one of the things I see in Cincinnati is, you know, you actually have a little bit of everything. There are big, the big companies, there are the universities, and there's, there is the startup community. And I think the intersection of those is the new fast frontier will be countries and communities that can exploit all of those uh, innovation traditions, genres, and, and and get exploit the intersections between them too. Mm. So, sort of the uh, the Italian rena- the Renaissance period of cross-pollination yes. of ideas, and yeah. So, so let's transition to what you're doing now and the broader project, which is both University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon, right? Yep, mm-hmm. the alliance. Could you talk about that, how that came to be and and the objectives for that program? So this is really an example of the intersection of academic, big corporate, and entrepreneurial worlds. So it's a center that's located within the university. There's a sister center at Pitt. Really, the two of them together, because CMU does not have a medical school. Pitt has a great medical school. CMU plus Pitt can compete with anyone on the planet when it comes to digital health. And that, by the way, is a lesson that for, you know, for some cities, um, it's, it's uh, alliances like that can elevate you into the major leagues. 
um, worth worth great knowing point. that. But it's a, it's a center within the university, so surrounded by all these great academic minds and students. It's funded by my current sponsors to the center are UPMC, which is the big integrated healthcare provider and insurer in Pennsylvania, about a $14 billion company, half from healthcare providing work and half from insurance, Amazon Web Services, and uh, Roche Genentech. My role is to take money from them and to invest it in um, technologies that are at the translational tipping point that are ready for use in their respective industries. And typically, we would cross that, that make that transition through a startup. So basically, the money comes in from big core sources into a university center, and then what comes out on the other end is startups. So I'm sort of in that intersection of all those worlds that I had imagined would be a very fertile place to be. And I think the, the thesis was correct. We're certainly exploiting the resources that big companies have. We're exploiting the smarts and the basic research investment that government has made in the, those universities. And then we're packaging it up in startups, which can then take venture investment and move very fast and, and with agility to, to harvest these technologies. And I think that kind of arrangement, not, not just in healthcare, I see that the center we've set up here, this model is applicable to lots of industries, and it might be the way to do R&D in the 2020s and 2030s that makes takes advantage of all of the things we do really well in the U.S. and combine them all together. Could you share an example of how any one of those startups is, is leveraging the infrastructure capabilities of the UPMC or, you know, the larger? I'll talk about a startup that a friend of mine, uh, Carl Kingsford, as one of the co-founders, it's called Ocean Genomics, uh, and you can check it out. And basically, it's the world leader already as a small startup in RNA sequencing software. So let me explain why that's why that's maybe important. So there's been a ton of academic work over the years on uh, well, basically computational biology, computational issues around genomics. And the hope is that that will lead to a precision medicine where the therapy that you get for your disease is tailored to you as an individual, not just your health history, but also your your omic background and DNA, we're all sort of familiar maybe at this point with, well, maybe there's some things in your DNA that would make you more or less amenable to particular treatments. RNA may be better than that because RNA is about expressed genes rather than just genes which may not be expressed. So, so it's really harvesting an awful lot of academic work that's gone on for decades and, um, and was done within the university. And, and, and Carl had been working on advancing that work with, uh, with a grant from the, I think it was the Gordon Moore Foundation, part of which required him to make the software available for free. So a totally academic kind of thing. It's like develop this, put the software out for free. And then I set up the center and started working with Carl. And I said, you know, that kind of thing you're doing, maybe to take it to the next level, you need some entrepreneurial thinking maybe taking it as far as you can with this kind of uh, uh, academic slash government uh, support. You now need pension users, whether they're drug companies or, or, or healthcare providers and the patients that they have. You're going to need more money than you typically get in a government grant. 
this was exactly my argument of why you need to bring these different traditions together. And, and Carl, you know, he's basically gone in 18 months from knowing very little about startups to being a, 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 an experienced and very good entrepreneur very fast. And he realized he was actually, you know, having given away his software, but it was now the dominant software for RNA sequencing in the world. He had a, uh, a client base, you know, email addresses for 50,000 users for this software. Well, that's a great way to do marketing if you can upsell them. And so he incorporated, he's raised a Series A, and he's now fighting the good fight of, of, uh, of trying to get this out there and, and used. And that, to me, pulls in everything. There was no element of that that, that wasn't essential. Mm. You know, the decades of government, you know, NIH and NSF funding for computational biology, that's what it took to get there, to invest in people like Carl and the students and his collaborators. Then UPMC needed to put the money in and say, well, yeah, now we're going to spend some money on the translational component and, and, and help a little bit with that. And then the entrepreneurial world even more. So, I, so that's one example of, you know, maybe half a dozen we have at this point, a dozen or so that are illustrative of this thesis of combining these different innovation ecosystems traditions effectively and i think we can continue to do that again and again and as i said it's hard to imagine how a company like ocean genomics would have come out of some other trajectory some other environment because it needed all of those things to get to where it's at i think this is really interesting for people to know because when they think of carnegie mellon they probably think of robotics and ai they don't necessarily think of of health tech and if you, if you look at the rankings of, you know, top schools that startups, you know, founders of startups or employees of startups in Silicon Valley, where they come from, Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon's consistently in the top 10, if not in the top three. Yeah. Yeah. And, often, uh, I, so. yeah, I mean, MIT, Stanford and Berkeley and, 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 and Carnegie Mellon, you know, they're the four sort of leaders in applied computing and not, not by the way, coincidentally, that was that was also government program. They they were picked for preferential funding in the post Sputnik era when there was an attempt to 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 put and keep um, the U.S. at the forefront of of computing technologies. So it didn't happen by accident. Um, they're great universities, uh, worthy competitors. Um, and um, but you're right. It's it's broadened that like the computational biology department, one of the strengths of CMU, but that's not on the popular, uh, you know, it's, it is robotics and AI and natural language, but there are actually great strengths as well. One of the things that I discovered that didn't know was the Heinz School of um, public, public Policy. You know, I, I was I, I had a different model for that at, at, at Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government, you know, not a, not a place where computational scientists hung out. At CMU, at the Heinz School, uh, you you don't get in the door unless you are pretty competent in machine learning and statistical analysis and applied math. You know, some of the faculty in the Heinz School of Public Policy would be equivalent to the machine learning faculty at other universities. And and again, a great intersection that I didn't think about, but public policy and, and, and statistical analysis, machine learning, they call it data-driven social science. Well, yeah, and that's some of the folks that I hope hear this and understand this are those uh, potential entrepreneurs tech back- with a tech background that went to Carnegie Mellon or grew up in Pittsburgh or, you know, the Great Lakes, Midwest mm-hmm. area, and they might be out running around in Silicon Valley right now. 
thinking about doing their next startup. And if they haven't reached out and stayed connected with Carnegie Mellon, they might want to do that. They might want to connect with you. And this is how you and I connected to try to address, you know, another constraint right now to that innovation. You had a lot of the, the technical capabilities, but do you have access to enough of those entrepreneurial leaders that have been through and seen that experiential uh, component of uh, uh, creating and being part of a hyper growth company. Exactly. And that's, that is a bit of a challenge, but it's, it's, um, but I think, you know, the concept that you've explained to me of the boomerangs trying to get people to come back, but also trying to like, I'm not a boomerang. I was not most in from Pittsburgh, but, um, but got attracted here. And I realized I was, it's, it's the rock that people aren't looking under. You know, if you are either a, an executive or an investor, if you go to the Bay area or the Northeast, you're competing for whatever it is you want, that job or that investment opportunity with lots of others. You come to Pittsburgh, you come to Cincinnati, the competition hasn't figured that out yet. Podcasts like this, more people will. There's opportunities there for you know people who are willing to dig a little deeper that are just as good um, and you don't have, they're not, they're not picked over to the same extent. You should come check us out. What do you think are some of the myths that might be out there that people have about uh, innovation in that that area, you know, specifically within the geographic area? Well, I, I think, I mean, it is important to, to, to you know, the, the, the Bay Area does have some huge advantages in in terms of, you know, capital and talent that are there. But it's not the only place. Like, like capital is, is, a, is, is a great example. You know, I've heard many people say, oh, yeah, you can only get that invested in, in the Bay Area. Well, that's not true. There's capital elsewhere. And in fact, the capital may have different flavors. My first startup was a startup that was related to the consumer packaged good industry. And, uh, and I was told oh, when I went to the Bay Area, no, we don't, we don't put money into those kinds of things. That's a, you know, that's a Midwest kind of thing. They meant it pejoratively, but it was actually, actually, no, I am in the wrong place. It's, you know, companies like Procter & Gamble, you know, Walmart, they're not, they're not coastal companies and they want to innovate and they invest in innovation. And um, you might have a better shot at attracting money from them than where we're at than, uh, than on the coast. So, so, you know, so there was a myth that, yeah, you want to get them, you can only get the investment in the Bay area. Not only could you not get it there, there's actually things that they'll turn their nose up at um, because it's, it doesn't have the, the kind of sex appeal that they want, but there's a lot of innovation that is, uh, that will, has appeal to other places. Yeah. So that's, that's one myth. It's not, it's not, the second rate is is not in the Bay Area. It's just, it's different stuff is not in the Bay Area. So thank you very much for sharing that. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation as always. As always, yes. As always. <laughs> Professor, Dr. Joseph Marks, thank you very much for being on today and good luck with the Center for Machine Learning and Healthcare. Wonderful, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Chris Reisick, founder and chief executive officer of the Renaissance Venture Capital Fund. 